Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The sun was setting in the west. It was the end of another beautiful day in the little town of Thessalonica, the city of victory. She made her way into her home, and she made her way to the back bedroom, and there behind a tapestry, she carefully removed this little stone that was in the wall. Behind the stone was a little leather pouch. This was the ancient banking system that was available to widows. And she grabbed this little pouch. She gently put the stone back, the tapestry back, slid the bed against the wall, and a flood of memories filled her mind as she remembered Jason, her beloved husband who had died She couldn't believe it had been a year now. She still sometimes had nightmares of the night when the the guard of the city came and took him from their home. They arrested him. There was no access to Jason for days, and her and her son and daughter prayed for him, but they knew why they had come. They had come for Jason because he had found a new king. His loyalty, his allegiance had moved from that of Caesar to that of a new king, one who was more powerful, a king who had been killed, crucified, a criminal by the Romans who had been buried for three days, but on the third day he pulled off Easter. He rose from the dead. And then he was seen by people for the next 40 days. At one time, he was seen by 500 witnesses. And then he pulled off a Superman move and ascended into the heavens. And this king, this king that Jason followed before his untimely death, was now seated at the right hand of the father. She had these visions that kept her moving forward. Visions that Jason was now free of the bonds of this life. She had hope. Hope that she had never experienced before. Hope that she too would join him one day. But for now, for now she had great joy. This widow with two children had this amazing joy, and you would never guess the source of her joy this day. The source of her joy was the fact that she was going to give away the money in the little leather pouch. This money that she had worked so hard to, to, to squirrel away in the year since Jason's death, the church had surrounded her with fellowship, with sharing, with help. They had surrounded her with food, and with clothing for herself and her children. They had given her little odd jobs. She'd taken in some laundry. She'd taken in some sewing. She had actually started a little side business. And her most frequent 
customers were the folks from church. And it was from those earnings. She had started putting money away. She didn't quite know why, but she thought it just would be wise to save some money away. But at this point, she just felt this in her spirit that she was supposed to give this money away. She took the money down to those who were uh, there in town. It was Timothy and Silas and Paul. And she went to these men who were the ones who came and told her little town about this Jesus, this new king. And she went and she gave them the little pouch. Paul refused her at first. He knew all that Danae had experienced this past year with Jason's death. She knew, he knew all too well the cost of discipleship that she had experienced. He knew all too well, but she insisted. She pleaded with Paul, take it. God wants me to give it to you. So reluctantly, Paul and Silas and Timothy received her gift. This gift was a monetary gift, and it was a part of a collection that Paul was taking up during his missionary journey to go to Jerusalem, to the church in Jerusalem, the believers who were experiencing a severe famine. What could ever motivate somebody to give their last cent to people who they had never met in their lives, to people they would never meet on this side of the grave? What could possibly motivate this amazing, sacrificial gift from this woman? And not just from her, but there were, there were droves of Thessalon Thessalonians that came and gave. There were not only those in that church, but there were people from all of Macedonia, their state, if you will, that came and gave out of their deep poverty to the Christians in Jerusalem. What on earth could motivate this? Today, we're going to look at what could motivate such amazing giving. Our scripture reading today, Exodus 34, you're thinking, huh? What does that have to do with this? Uh, real quickly, I wanted to help you remember that the backstory to the day of Pentecost during the time of the exiles, when the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem after the first temple was destroyed, during their time in exile in the land of Babylon, they began to become people that shaped their community around the word, around Torah, and around the prophets. And one of the things that they started to link up the day of Pentecost with and the, the Feast of Weeks is another name it goes by, is the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai. It's one of those hyperlinks that God gives us in his word. And so with that in mind, we come to this day of Pentecost and we've been looking at this for the last several weeks. And last week, I kind of gave you from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, these four things that the church was doing at that point in time in Jerusalem. And so to remind us what those were, let's look again at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. 
And they devoted themselves, a very religious word, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, another very religious word, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so last week I put together these four things that kind of in less religious ways of saying what was going on. That they devoted themselves. They were a community of learning. They devoted. It was another way of saying they had a habit of getting together and learning from the apostles. They became students of Jesus and his teachings because that's what Jesus had intended for them to be. And then this word fellowship, it's a very churchy word. Sometimes I hear folks say, you know, that's a great time of fellowship. Can't, can't wait to get together and fellowship. And when we use this word, what do we mean? You never would use this, by the way, right, with your non-Christian, non-Methodist friends, right? You'd be, Boy, I can't, get, can't wait to get together at Sammy's on Friday night and fellowship with you, right? Is it called Sammy's? I can't remember. Can't wait for fellowship. I mean, it's a very churchy word. And when we think of this word fellowship, we often think of this idea of just hanging out, getting together, spending time with one another. And that's a good thing, and that's a little bit in that word, but the the Greek word for this is koinonia. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time unpacking this word today. The other two things, the breaking of bread, this was getting together and eating, which, you know, Methodists, every Christian group I've ever been a part of thinks that their group does potlucks the best. And you can tell I've had some experience at potlucks. And we get together and we eat and we enjoy eating, but this was also uh, the Christian code word for breaking bread together, the Lord's Supper, communion. They would come together and they would be together. They would do life together. You see, we don't just invite anyone over for dinner. We invite people we want to get to know and to spend time with and do life with. And then the fourth thing, the prayers, worship. They spent their time worshiping God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The church devoted themselves to this. This is their new way of life. This was their new pattern. This was their new habit. This was their culture. This was all new to them, and it was being created and formed. And so we're going to spend some time looking at this word koinonia a little bit today. And it's interesting because Luke, our author, gives us very quickly a thumbnail sketch of what he means by this koinonia. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Other translations might say they had, um, they shared everything. And that word common, all things in common, is the exact same root of our word koinonia, koinos. It's the same root word, koinonia, koinos. And what we're seeing is that Luke is unpacking, he's describing, he's telling us what koinonia is. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If we flip to one, to one page over in your Bible into chapter 4 of Acts, you're going to see that there's times where Luke just kind of pauses the narrative and he gives a description of what's going on in the church and he'll just quickly give you a thumbnail, a thumbnail sketch of, and by the way, let me re- remind you of what's going on in the church. And so chapter 4, verse 32 
And you're going to go, huh, that sounds really similar to what I just heard. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Guess what the word is underneath our English word common? Again, it's that koinonia, it's koinos. And it's just this mind-boggling passage because at this point, early in the church, we know on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to their number. And up in the upper room, there were 120 who were waiting, who were praying. So we've got 3,120 people at the least. And then we also read at the end of Acts chapter 2 that the Lord added daily to their number. So we've got 3,000 plus people who it says are all one in heart and mind. You know, I haven't lived in Cavalier very long, but this town can't get all one heart, one mind, can it? I mean, just look at all the different churches we have. It's hard for us all to be one heart and one mind as followers of Jesus. And this is just an astounding description. For me, in my mind's eye, the closest thing I can picture this is game day. Right? <laughs> Game day for uh, down at the Fargo Dome. I drove by that the other day. Impressive building. My guess is the fans walking in there are of one heart and one mind, right? Go Bison. Let's win. Let's do this. And, and by the way, the Bison just seem to beat up on everybody they play. Seems to be what I'm saying from an outsider's point of view. But that's the closest we have. Could you imagine if the church could be of one heart and one mind like the fans of the Bisons? What could we get done? (laughs) What could we accomplish? What would it look like as a witness to Jesus if we could all just go, hey, we're in this together. We're one heart, one mind. And it's interesting because as you continue to read this passage, chapter 4, verse thirty. Oh, 34. There was not an, well, sorry, I skipped 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is a remarkable story, and there are thousands of little stories in this bigger story. We will never know of those who are in charge of administering this. Could you imagine? I mean, I'm sure there's days they were frustrated. They're like, you sold what? Oh my gosh, how much did you get for it? Really? That's amazing. Okay, let's take this and that. Yeah, I know some needy folks. And the, the, the distribution and all of this that was going on, we will never know these stories. But for thousands of years, the church has come around these texts and reminded ourselves of our brothers and sisters in the misty past who followed Christ and experience this great grace. Luke starts to link up these two amazing concepts, grace and fellowship. And Paul the Apostle will do the same. And we start to get an answer. We start to get an answer for why our friend in Thessalonica gave all she had. In Second Chronicle, or excuse me, Corinthians, 
chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, when we hear a statement like that, we want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the brothers and sisters in the church of Macedonia. What do you think you're going to hear a story about? When you hear that God's grace is broken out someplace, what's in your mind's eye that you're going to hear a story of? My mind's eye, I often think I'm going to hear a story of conversion. I'm going to hear a story of how somebody has been convicted of the way that they were doing life before, and then God broke in with his grace, and now they have converted. They've changed. But that's not the type of grace that we're going to read about here. That's not the type of grace that Paul has in mind as he continues He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, what they've experienced is that they've experienced this amazing grace, right? The hymn. They've experienced this grace of God, and this grace has motivated them. And again, we're going to run into our other word, koinonia, when it said that they begged for the opportunity to participate, to take part, to, to give. That's our word, koinonia, again. They begged for the opportunity to give. And Paul says, and this is paraphrasing what he says a little bit, these folks were dirt poor. They experienced extreme poverty, but even out of that, they gave. They gave, it's astonishing what they gave. They gave all they could. Nay, they gave more than they could. Paul is saying that we were shocked. We were not even going to ask these poor Christians to give, but they came out in droves and they overwhelmed us with their giving. What motivates that? What could transform a person to that point? And over and over and time again, we see these words connected. It is grace. It is grace that motivates people to give. Well, how could that possibly work? It's fascinating. Uh, If you've spent any time on planet Earth, anybody? Anybody spend any time here? This is a weird place, and we are in a very weird season of planet Earth. I mean, I moved from one state to another in the midst of a pandemic. And apparently I'm okay because it's been more than a month and nobody's gotten ill and we haven't had a major outbreak. But on the flight before I moved here, I flew with a bunch of other folks and we all had masks on. And you go to Dollar General and some of you are choosing not to go to Dollar General because they make you wear a mask there, right? And you drive to Grand Forks, you drive to Fargo, you have to wear a mask And we're living in this point in time where we are being daily reminded how broken this world is and how frail and fragile we are. And pundits and newscasts and people wrestle with, how did it get this way? Why is the world so messed up? I mean, what is going on? 
And the reason that Christians have quick answers is because we have this ancient book full of this ancient wisdom that gives us ancient wisdom that makes us sound like we're really smarter than we are. Because we're able to go back to this ancient book and we're able to say, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is what's wrong with the world. And what's wrong with the world is you and I. We've come into this world and we've broken this world. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not completely broken. There are wonderful, beautiful things still in this world. Humanity, men and women and children, we are all beautiful. But we're broken. The Bible word for this is sin. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have come into His beautiful creation and we have taken our garbage and tossed it on the shore. We've ruined it. We've marred it. We've radically changed it. And if you were God, how would you respond to this problem? How does God respond to this problem? God gives. God gives. It's called grace. God extends grace. You see, in the word grace is the idea of a gift. And God gives a gift to us. He gives us His Son, Jesus Christ. And He sends His Son. And He puts on flesh, just like you and I. And He moves into our neighborhood. And He lives life. A life that you and I were supposed to live, but we can't because of our sin nature. But He lives this perfect life. And then he dies this tragic, horrific, painful death, a death that you and I deserve to die. But he died in our place. They buried him. Three days later, he pulls off Easter. He rises from the dead. And he does this for you and he does this for me because if you're like me, you've messed up your life at times. There's things in your past that you'd rather not think about. You deny. There's pain in your life that you run from. There's decisions that you're making even today that are horrible, terrible, painful decisions to you and others around you that I make that are painful to me and others around me. I have this natural bent in me to self-destruction. And Jesus comes and he gives us grace. God the Father in his great compassion. You see, part of that Exodus reading, Exodus 34, it's the most quoted verse in the New Testament. The Lord is compassionate. Excuse me, it's not in the New Testament. It's the most, most quote in the Old Testament. The Lord is compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And that is manifest, that is demonstrated to us in that He sent Jesus to us, a gift. And if that can't motivate you, if that can't motivate you to give, to share, 
to enter into fellowship, to be motivated like the young woman I made up this story about in Thessalonia. But I wonder with my sanctified imagination what stories were left out of Scripture. But when Paul tells us they pleaded, they begged, they were dirt poor, and they gave... It just boggles my mind that sisters and brothers of mine throughout history have given so much. There's a quote by Tim Keller. He's a pastor, was a pastor. He's now retired, a pastor in New York City. And uh, if you could put, did I put that in there? I hope I put that in there because I don't remember it from the top of my head. But he says this, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. I think he's right. You see, Paul in 2 Corinthians Chapter 8, the one we've already looked at, in verse 9, goes on and says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. May we become a church. May we become a people who manifest God's grace in sharing God's grace. Let us become more like Jesus. Let us use the riches of this world to help those in need so that we might be more like Jesus each and every day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that the Holy Spirit saw wise to put these stories down into Scripture. We pray that these things would motivate us to be more like Jesus today. Help us, challenge us to share our lives and our treasures with others. Holy Spirit, make it so. Amen.